This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge and you're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. It's dense, it's atonal, it's chaotic, but that's partly the point. It's the music of early 20th century composer Arnold Schoenberg. The Nazis didn't like him, they thought his music was degenerate art. But according to Theodore Adorno, one of the philosophers we're looking at this week, Schoenberg's music was uncontaminated with reason, and as such, it represented nothing less than the answer to everything that had gone wrong with the European Enlightenment. Adorno, of course, thought that music like Schoenberg, like these works, there is a possibility of having some sort of a a critical relationship to the existing culture, to the culture industry that didn't seem to be available to uh, a purely systematic uh, study in terms of science. And it is high culture that is the bearer of this emancipatory consciousness. That's John Grumley. He's an honorary associate professor in philosophy at the University of Sydney. And if you're in Sydney this week, he's giving a talk on Thursday at the Inner West Philosophy Forum titled What is Critical Theory? And we'll have more details about that later in the program. But first of all, to that question, what is critical theory? It's our question for this week. Well, it's a style of philosophical inquiry that emerged from a dissatisfaction with traditional ways of thinking about human beings and their connection to society. Critical theory is associated with Karl Marx and also with the work of the so-called Frankfurt School, a group of philosophers in the 1930s in Europe who were concerned with the failures of political Marxism and also with the rise of fascism. But if you like, you can go all the way back to the 17th century and locate the roots of critical theory in the Enlightenment. And the weird irony there is that critical theory is, as much as anything else, a critique of Enlightenment rationalism. Confused? Well, it is a twisted tale, but John Grumley can help us untangle it. Critical theory emerges out of the writings of Marx. Marx was, well, he interpreted his work essentially coming out of a a critique of traditional philosophy. In the 1830s, for example, he writes that uh, hitherto uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world but the real problem is to change the world. So you can see that Marx is interested in criticising a contemplative or a, a, a merely timeless understanding of philosophy. So he is concerned to see philosophy in relationship to society, politics, history, culture. And this means that for him, philosophy is not detached. It's not separated from life and history in the existing world. And he understood his own thought as a critique of capitalist society. He sees this society as a society of inequality, oppression. So his whole aspiration is to involve himself in a political movement He wants to make a contribution that will change the consciousness of the working class so that there will be a possibility 
of the emergence of a completely new society. And that rethinking is taken up by figures such as um, uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, who we'll, we'll be talking about a little bit later in the interview. But first of all, I want to talk about critical theory and this this term critical theory, because here we have a notion of theory that is a, a significant departure from the classical notion of theory. Can you tell me a bit about that? How was theory understood uh, by the ancient Greeks, for example? The traditional understanding of philosophy is that philosophy is uh, an argument across the ages. So if we go back to the Greeks, if we think of um, somebody like Plato or Aristotle, or we take forward and say people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, the idea is that these great philosophers, they have tried to come up with answers to these essentially timeless and eternal questions. It's, it's, this, the, it's a concern with eternal verities, if you like, rather than yes. the, or more than the transient affairs of human beings. Is, is that the kind of thing that you're getting at there? That's exactly right. Mm. And uh, by comparison... The idea of, uh, that is behind Marx's idea is that a philosophy is always connected to history, society, to the economy, to culture. Not timeless at all. It is always changing. It is always being modified by the thoughts and practices of particular individuals. This is something that is never stationary. The ball really gets rolling on this understanding um, around the time of the European Enlightenment. And, and this is where critical theory really picks up steam because with the Enlightenment, we see the formation of a whole new set of moral and critical assumptions about the world. What are these assumptions? Well, of course, the Enlightenment was a movement amongst philosophers and intellectuals who believed that it was time for individuals to uh, no longer simply accept authority and to have opinions that were the result not just of uh, traditional ideas, but of ideas that they had thought about and debated with other individuals. So one of the main ideas of the Enlightenment is that history isn't something that's stationary. It's something that is always uh, changing, progressing, it is a result of the activities of individuals. These individuals are not in any sort of natural order. These individuals have universal capacities like reason and ethics and morality. Well, let's proceed as we trace this uh, developmental trajectory of critical theory to 1928, because it was in 1928 that we see the founding of the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany. And then in 1930, Max Horkheimer is appointed director of the Institute. Very important figure in this discussion. And, and of course, this is where we begin to see the appearance of the term critical theory. And tell me about the importance of, of Horkheimer in this story. Uh, Horkheimer develops his own interpretation of Marx, and it is to Horkheimer that we owe the idea of critical theory itself. So this is a Western European interpretation of Marx that is a response of this crisis of Marxism after the First World War and after the result of the manifestations of, uh, of totalitarianism, both in European countries like in uh, Italy or in Germany or 
the totalitarian manifestations of the new Soviet Union after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. So Horkheimer, he's interpreting the works of Marx, but he latches on to certain key ideas in the young Marx. Uh, these are the Marx of the, the mid uh, 40s. These are the ideas of the so-called economic and philosophical manuscripts. And Horkheimer wants to take up this idea that there must be a practical dimension of philosophy. And that means that you have to understand philosophy in relationship to its cultural, to its historical and political conditions. And that critical theory has to be, in some sense, an expression of these changes and these new questions and the, the possibility of alternatives to the existing situation. So this brings us to 1947 and the publication of Dialectic of Enlightenment, which was written by um, Horkheimer with his fellow philosopher Theodore Adorno. And here is where we see critical theory beginning to be bound up with a critique of reason and an equation of enlightenment with myth, which is surprising given the formative role that the enlightenment played in the development of critical theory. So what's the nature of this critique that Horkheimer and Adorno are, are levelling, if you like, at the enlightenment? Essentially, Horkheimer and Adorno are writing in a climate of increasing totalitarianism in Europe and when he looks around the European world in that time, he sees that not only in Europe, but also in the Soviet Union and even also in uh, America at the time of the, the New Deal under Roosevelt, there are certainly key commonalities between the development of all these societies. This is why in the Dialectic of Enlightenment, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer offer this diagnosis of the contemporary world and they argue that the contemporary world is, on the one hand, a fully administered society. So this is a society where power and politics has become far more important and more controlling. So this means that the world has become something like an iron cage when it is much more difficult for individuals to express freedom and to be able to realise it. So the other uh, element of this diagnosis is what they call the decline of the individual. So with the fully administered society is also a reduction of the possibility that there could ever be true individuality because in such a society, if there's a control of economics, politics, culture, mass media, that it is far more difficult for individuals to have a, a self-reflective uh, relationship to their world and to their own ideas. And, so, and, and just to pick you up on the historical background there, I mean, you, you mentioned that this is happening partly as a response to fascist totalitarianism in Europe, but also in a response to American consumer culture. So they're drawing a parallel between these two. Yes, very definitely. Horkheim and Adorno will examine what they call the culture industry. So for them, culture is not necessarily a critical culture. This is a, a culture that has been incorporated into the capitalist society where individuals are placed a range of products 
that are quite deliberately created for various audiences. But the whole idea of the culture industry that you want people to become quietest, you want people to adapt to the world as it is and to that critical possibility of having a more reflexive relationship to their society is much more difficult. And and what's the relationship to enlightenment here? Are they seeing uh, Horkheimer and Adorno seeing modernity as a sort of enlightenment gone wrong or as a, a kind of anti-enlightenment? Yes, well, the whole, uh, one of the most radical theses of uh, Horkheimer and Adorno in the dialectic of enlightenment is the idea that in the contemporary world that... Uh, the very concept of reason itself uh, has been incorporated. Reason is no longer critical. Reason is just simply an instrumental value that can be used by the existing powers and the existing capitalist society. So the very possibility that reason can be a a bearer of uh, any critical relationship to the world is gradually disappearing. And this is why that Horkheimer, well, particularly Adorno, will say that because rational and uh, systematic scientific analysis of the world is no longer as critical as it can possibly be. So he wants to say that if you want a critical relationship to the current world, then you don't look to reason, you don't look to science, you look to art, you look to the other cultural forms like novels or other sorts of literature or music in which there is some possibility of a a critical relationship to the world. On RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. My guest is John Grumley from the University of Sydney, and we're looking at critical theory, an approach to philosophy and society that, as we've heard, can be traced back to the European Enlightenment. But critical theory also takes a sceptical look at the valorisation of reason that's such a familiar Enlightenment legacy. And it raises the question, when reason comes under critical scrutiny, what's left of the traditional role of philosophy? Well, in some of these philosophers, um, particularly Marcuse, who became very influential after the Second World War, they tend to retreat from the idea that there can be a, a practical possibility of transformation. They return to some sort of a a philosophical anthropology about the human characteristics that could possibly change the world, even if practically in a given situation, there seems no actual possibility of change. So in this sense, philosophy becomes a a sort of a, a reservoir of possibilities for some unidentified future. So this is why when Horkheimer and Adorno, they talk about their work as a, um, a message in, a, in a, a bottle that you throw into the ocean because even if in the current situation there is nobody who is able to understand their critical dimension to the world, that at some time in the future there will be somebody who will be able to find that bottle, they can open it and find the message that they will understand that is the possibility of emancipation. It's uh, it's pretty grim stuff, isn't it? It's quite pessimistic, but, but at least I suppose you, you still have there some idea of historical progress, don't you? Well, 
You say this is grim, but if one thinks what's happening in the United States, for example, after the uh, Second World War, then this is not surprising with the development of McCarthyism. Mm. Many uh, Germans like Thomas Mann, Bertolt Brecht and other major German intellectuals were uh, put before the Committee of Un-American Activities. So this sort of concern about the fully administered society and the development of authoritarianism is a very real thing in the 1950s. And so this is why some of these individuals, for example, Thomas Mann, uh, decides to leave America after himself leaving from the United States as a victim of uh, fascism. He then finishes, uh, goes to uh, and live in uh, Switzerland. Bertolt Precht also leaves America as well for, for similar reasons. So in this climate, then it's not surprising that uh, there is some concern about these issues. Mm. And you mentioned that Adorno had this idea that you might expect a little less of philosophy and a little more of, um, of art as a way of critiquing society. But then Adorno and Horkheimer's critique is also one of the contemporary mass culture of the time, the entertainment industry as much as anything else, isn't it? Yes, Adorno, of course, um, he himself was uh, very interested in music. Most of his works are in the philosophy of music, and he himself was a pianist. And so he thought that these great works of art, like great novels, like a Kafka, or a music like Schoenberg, like these works, there is a possibility of having some sort of a, a critical relationship to the existing culture, to the culture industry that didn't seem to be available to uh, a purely systematic uh, study in terms of science and in terms of um, the human sciences. And, so and did, did he distinguish these kinds of works from mass culture of which he was quite critical? Yes, so for him, it is high culture that is the bearer of this emancipatory consciousness. Adorno, in his late works, uh, rather than giving systematic analysis, he begins to sort of use uh, a sort of an aphoristic style because this sort of aphorisms could not be um, contaminated by reason or not to the same extent. So for him, these are forms of art and literature that could escape this sort of iron cage of the fully administered society. What I find interesting here is that when we think of the Enlightenment, I, I think most of us think of the Enlightenment as the point at which humanity sort of woke up, you know, and threw off the shackles of, of mythic thinking and, and began to began to turn to reason and rationality. But dialectic of Enlightenment shows us or argues that Enlightenment itself is, in a sense, infected with myth, with mythic thinking. How does that work? That's uh, definitely right, David. Uh, the ideas between Horkheimer and Adorno is that in the contemporary fully administered society, reason itself has become mythic in the sense that a rational interpretation of the contemporary world seems to suggest that it will never be changing, that it will be simply reproducing the world just as it is, that there is no future beyond the idea of capitalism. 
and the, the very ideas of uh, the, the modern society and its basic structure uh, just seem there is no possibility of changing it. Mm, we're so, back to a circular idea of history. Yes, yes. So in a sense, we, we've, almost, we've gone back to a, a more idea of the timelessness of the world. So that sort of um, uh, quietism is something that Horkheimer and Adorno think has lost the possibility of any sort of critical relationship to the contemporary world. Yeah, their insights seem so contemporary. I mean, there's so much in Dialectic of Enlightenment that you can, you know, you look around you today and go, well, yeah, they were spot on about this, that and the other. But it, it's a very radical theory from which reason and civilization itself emerges as, as deeply problematic and liberal democracy ends up looking very like a species of fascism. Is that going too far? I mean, what can we take from Dialectic of Enlightenment and, and what do we have to reject or perhaps rethink? I think we have to look at this uh, from two perspectives. I just recently read a paper that said that Adorno had anticipated the coming of Trump. So for critics of the contemporary world and of what's happening in America at the moment, they see that Adorno and Horkheimer's critique of authoritarianism at that time, at the time of the fully administered society, that the dangers in that society are always present and that they will always be there and that particularly the configuration of Trump and his populism, that that is a real danger and that is something that has to be considered very seriously if we are going to save uh, the important institutions of the possibility of a critical consciousness about uh, this society. So that's one dimension. The other dimension, of course, is that if we take this after the period of the Second World War, and we go up to the 1960s, then you see that at the time of the mid-60s, when there is a development of student radicalism, and with the development of uh, a whole lot of all sort of alternative ways of life and alternative sort of cultural ideas, it is precisely at that time that contemporary students begin to discover and to recognise the importance of the individuals of the Frankfurt School. So particularly Herbert Marcuse in the 1950s was the most famous philosopher throughout the world. And Marcuse was a sort of a minor player, but still a very significant thinker amongst the Frankfurt School. So in this respect, we can see that critical theory in the 1960s becomes rediscovered. All these major works were republished and uh, these works played a very important role in the development of a whole lot of important uh, political and cultural movements at that time that were very, very important that have uh, been significant and had repercussions right into the contemporary world. So do these works and, and this, this, um, this development of, a, of a, a new consciousness among young people in the, in the 60s, does this represent the possibility of resistance to those oppressive aspects of liberal capitalism that dialectic of enlightenment sees in a, in a very pessimistic light, in a, in a sort of a, in an all-encompassing light? Yes. Well, again, this is never all-encompassing. I mean, as you said, this is a time of a dark hour, 
But the very idea for Horkheimer and Adorno that this does not mean that there's the end of all possibilities of changing things, because the whole thing about this particular perspective of history is that there are always possibilities, because individuals are always free. They are never completely controlled and completely conditioned. There is always the idea that, you know, the fat lady has not sung, that there is always these ideas that there are other possibilities and other uh, perspectives and that these remain as life possibilities if they can be harnessed. So if one thinks of what's happened since uh, the 1960s, then you can see a whole flowering of different sort of protest movements about the contemporary world. If you think of the development of feminism, if you think of, uh, you know, the movement of uh, green culture uh, uh, for the environment and and climate change, if you think about post-colonialism, gay liberation, prison reform, I mean, all of these social movements exploded in the immediate period after uh, these developments in, at the end of the 1960s. And so these movements are one of the most important uh, perspectives on the ongoing possibility of some sort of reform and development and, 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 and critical reflection upon contemporary society. And as you say, all these progressive developments are the fruit of enlightenment. But then also, if we bear... Horkheimer and Adorno's critique in mind, things like climate change are the fruits of enlightenment as well, that sort of instrumental rationality. And given the situation that we are in today in the, in the 21st century with the seriousness of climate change and, and related problems, how much of that 1960s optimism do you retain? Has, has the fat lady sung yet, do you think? <laughs> I don't think the fat lady is sung because I don't think the the fat lady ever sings. I think this is the whole point that, uh, you know, unless there is some environmental disaster that means that's the end of mankind, then maybe the fat lady might then sing. But otherwise, uh, I think there are always prospects to revise, to criticise, to change our policies, to become more rational about science and understand the consequences about something like the possibility of climate change. So I guess I'm a, I'm an optimistic person. So for me, it's important to, uh, in a sense, keep playing the game, uh, even in very, uh, you know, pessimistic times. So even if one thinks of the great second generation of the uh, Frankfurt School, somebody like Habermas, then Habermas uh, is now a man of 90 years, but he's still writing and publishing in the public sphere, trying to influence developments both in Europe and in Germany so that these ideas of a more democratic society uh, is still a possibility and we still have to work for. So uh, I'm uh, Habermasian in this sense, so uh, I remain optimistic. John Grumley, Honorary Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. And as I mentioned at the top of the program, John Grumley will be speaking on Critical Theory this Thursday evening, 21st of March, at the Inner West Philosophy Forum in Marrickville, Sydney. 
Details on the website, go to ABCRN and look for the Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. And if you're not in Sydney, then of course you can listen to the program again via the ABC Listen app or any podcast app. We've also got streaming audio on the website and a massive back catalogue of programs. It's all there for you. And I'm David Rutledge. Our producer is Diane Dean. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.